Hi, everybody. Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Vert podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious future for us all. As we move into spring, I am so excited to bring you a conversation about a deep connection to the natural world and creativity to help with the climate crisis with the incredible Lily Kwong. Lily is a renowned landscape artist who works at the intersection of horticulture, urban design, contemporary art, climate awareness, and wellness, reconnecting people to nature through transformative landscape projects and botanical art installations. Kwong has been part of numerous public art initiatives since beginning her practice in 2017, including botanical installations at the High Line and Grand Central Terminal in New York, Taipei Night Market, and many more. She's received numerous accolades for her work and was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2018 and Elle Decor's A-list. Recognizing her efforts, Kwong was named one of nine young New Yorkers poised for creative greatness by the New York Times, and her work has been featured in The New Yorker, Vogue, and Architectural Digest. Most recently, she was asked to be the 20th guest designer for the New York Botanical Gardens, the first woman of color to be asked to do so. She has dedicated her design for the show to her Asian heritage and a hope for peace after a lot of discrimination caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Inspired by her own Chinese heritage, medicinal traditions, and her artistic interpretation of nature as a healing force, the resulting experience will beckon visitors into an immersive world in which humanity and nature coexist peacefully. Today, Lily and I are speaking about the importance of using gardens to reconnect people to the natural world, create awareness around the climate crisis, and even how florals can be used as an art form that spark a reaction and a conversation. We discuss the importance of rewilding our urban spaces where we can, and Lily's newfound dedication to working with native plants in her own garden and her wider work to help with biodiversity, climate resiliency, and water retention as she experiences severe drought firsthand at her home in California. This is a conversation about the beauty of the natural world, the way human creativity can lead to meaningful change through art, and even how Lily is approaches approaching conscious parenting through a lens of connecting her child to the gardens, florals, and forest she works with. This is a beautiful conversation full of meaningful moments of wisdom that have come from Lily's unique work, and I hope you are inspired to get out and do some gardening yourself after this one. Now, over to Lily. Hi, Lily. I am so excited. I can't believe that it's been so long since we chatted and life has taken us in very various ways since we initially met in New York. Um, so on that theme, I think let's let's wind it back all the way to the beginning, because I really like to ask kind of everybody that comes on the same question, which is just to tell us a bit about your childhood and sort of your evolution of loving the natural world and sort of passion for sustainability, because I find it so interesting, like where where those moments of of inspiration come from and how early they can start for us. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the history of, of you, really? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to reconnect after all these years, as you said, and um, both landed in such fruitful and different places, really. So um, I one of the greatest blessings of my life was that I grew up in Marin and Mill Valley, which um, some people might know is the home of the redwood trees, which are the tallest trees 
in the world. And so I just grew up against the backdrop of these ancient giants and they really feel more like these beings than they do like plants and, and connecting with the forest there is, is kind of a spiritual experience. I mean, the light there, that California golden light and how it kind of splices through the trees, it feels like a cathedral. And so, um, you know, I was really lucky that uh, uh, my school and classes was always really integrated with the natural world from kindergarten. We were being led out into the woods by a science teacher. I started my first nature club in first grade, which consisted of, um, you know, building forts and foraging for plants and tracking wildlife and just getting dirty, making mud pies, setting up little kitchens and experimenting and using plants and earth and, um, elements of nature as the medium to connect, to storytell, to imagine. And that was just infused throughout my whole childhood and into teenagerdom. You know, we were doing the same things of, you know, partying and exploring, but we would hike all the way to the top of Mount Tam or, you know, drive all the way out to the beach or go up to Point Reyes to hunt for oysters. And so my whole life just kind of took place outside. And that's something that stuck with me. And then my grandfather and, you know, my family is really close. My parents always, you know, planted a vegetable garden with us every year. They weren't great or expert gardeners, but they did it anyways. And then my grandfather was kind of a uh, master in the garden. Um, and my whole childhood, I spent volunteering at the farmer's market with him periodically. And he taught me how to um, harvest and plants. And it was just very integrated into our lives. Yeah, that's amazing. And then in terms of, you know, you know, I feel like your experiences with the garden will come back to it because it's sort of, you sort of went in a different way for a while, didn't you? It's like, cause we met in, you know, we met over a shared love of sustainable fashion at the time. So can you tell us a little bit about those sort of interim years where you maybe weren't doing gardening, but it seems like sustainability was always a, a bit of a thread throughout your life. Absolutely. So I got connected to the fashion world. I, I was never someone who really coveted fashion or it was just not, as I mentioned, it was kind of a tomboy out in the woods. So it just wasn't really part of my childhood, but my cousin happens to be Joseph Altazara, who's one of the most talented designers of our generation. Oh, and he I didn't started... know that. That's so funny. Oh, really? No, I yeah. didn't. So he um, launched his label when we were living together in 2000, probably would have been 2007 or so, maybe 2008. Um, and so, and he fit his whole first collection on me and I just was kind of immersed in his world and got to see, it was my first experience being front row to a designer and seeing somebody process their research and inspiration and mood boards and translate it into this just completely stunning design work. And it was through that relationship that I kind of got swept up in the fashion world and um, did a little bit of modeling when I was 18, 19, 20, that got me interested in cities because I was, I had never traveled much as a kid. My family didn't really have the resources to travel. And then suddenly I was getting dropped into Paris and Milan and Shanghai and London and 
I, I got interested in cities and how they function and how different the interaction and the experience of the environment is based on design, design elements. And so when I ultimately went back to school at Columbia University, I ended up studying urban urban planning and urban studies largely because of that experience in fashion. And, um, you know, going to a large research university, we kind of had a broad um, exposure to lots of different ideas and theories and sustainability was always something that was a part of the conversation. And so when I graduated, um, I, my, how I reconnected with the fashion world was more thinking about it from a sustainability lens. And I think I was able to really integrate my values and things that, um, I believed in and understood as a child, you know, understanding that there needs to be a harmony or balance between nature and humans that extractive practices deplete our environment and ultimately uh, damage our societies. You know, I was able to think more critically about the fashion world after kind of going through the experience of educating myself. So, well, I can, I can 100% relate to that. And I feel like it's interesting because there's, what I find so fascinating about your work is like, there is such an urban element to it. And this idea that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be living in nature to engage with nature. And in terms of, so you find yourself, you know, you're in New York city, you're maybe like you're in fashion at this moment, you've got a background in urban planning and all of these things are like I would say ultimately connected through creativity and sustainability, but then also sort of at odds with each other, because as we were talking about before we got on, you know, it's sometimes hard when you're in these like concrete jungles to really actually foster that connection to nature. That's kind of at the heart of it all. So how did you start to think about like melding your location with your passion, with your love for nature and design? Because I find that that is such an interesting intersection for people to arrive at? Well, you're right. Is It's very hard to feel a connection to wilderness in New York City. I mean, there are urban parks, but they're very planned. Um, but that wildness that you grew up with in Maine or I grew up with in the Redwoods, that's not, you know, running down Fifth Avenue. And um I moved to New York when I was 18 and I graduated school because I dropped out of school for a few years. I graduated by the time I was 24. So I'd spent six years in this concrete jungle. And you were right. I was completely disconnected from the natural world. It was not a part of my practice. It was not. Um, also, I think at that age, you're not very like in tune with your needs or your kind of bodily rhythms or um, you don't have tools in your toolkit yet to practice, uh, you know, homeostasis or um, I, at least I didn't. I, I was not kind of like taking care of my mental or physical health in the way that I do now. I bring so much more mindfulness to that to that now. And I think I was feeling a lot of things that I think I see in a lot of friends and colleagues who reside in big cities where, you know, people are dealing with high levels of stress, of anxiety, of sleeplessness, of bouts of, you know, depression, sometimes severe, sometimes minor. And I was going through all of those rhythms, um, you know, just like everybody else. And then 
when I graduated with an urban studies degree, my first job out of school just happened to be at this urban design firm based in Miami. Uh, a mutual friend who graduated from Columbia said, you know, I know this one person in urban planning. Why don't you meet with them? And I was just so lucky that this firm happened to specialize in landscape design. And I, it was not on my radar when I was at school, I was not studying landscape. I was studying, especially, uh, you know, that program I was in was much more about urban theory, urban sociology. Um, so I was kind of writing and doing research more than I was thinking about design. And then I think this company IPC specialized in working in really remote, really logistically challenging areas. So I went from living in, you know, the Lower East Side to suddenly being in Central West Africa and Gabon in Croatia and Careas and the Bahamas and just being around plant life and being around wilderness, like we were talking about, not manicured parks and plants, like being in the jungle with uh, a community who's gathering seeds to launch nursery infrastructure for a project that we're designing. And as soon as my body got out into nature again, my whole system came alive. I kind of returned to that childlike self that I was so lucky to experience in Mill Valley. And I suddenly felt calm. I suddenly was sleeping. I was suddenly a better friend. I was suddenly a better daughter. I was just, felt just more connected to my body, to my soul, to to my community. And it just became really clear that this was my path. Oh, I want to scale this realization to as many people as possible. When you reconnect with the natural world, we reconnect with the essential part of ourselves that's so easy to forget in our modern technological society is we are a part of the ecosystem. We are a part of nature. And so that's what my work has been dedicated to ever since I had that epiphany for, for myself. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so true. Like we were saying, I mean, when I moved to Maine, one of the things that I didn't realize was going to happen was that I slept through the night again, that I didn't need yeah. to take CBD oil. My skin got better. Like I was going to bed at 10 and waking up at six. Like I just, it's so funny. And it wasn't like anything that I was doing. It was just literally like being in this kind of countryside where like you see the stars and the moons and your circadian rhythm is in alignment. And it's funny because it's something I've been thinking about so much since we moved here is sort of how you, how you kind of, I don't know, impart some of the, cause not everybody can like retire to the country, right. Or has the inclination to go to the country, but you know, how we start to bring the natural world back into ourselves. Cause as you said, it, it really, I think, so much of what ails us as modern society, there are all these like incredible technological developments and medical solutions that people are coming up with, but sometimes like the simplest things can be the most effective. And so I guess on that vein, how did you, so your next step, so you're working at this incredible company, you're getting back into nature, you're finding that this is your path. And then what happens next? Because obviously you don't work there anymore. So what was the next iteration of, you know, where things were going to head for you? Yeah, I was missing New York. I I spent two years basically on a plane sprinting, you know, yeah. to all of these various projects around the world. And it was really exciting because it was a baptism by fire. I got a broad survey 
internationally about what urban design and landscape design could look at like at a very large large scale um but i was i was really depleted and i wanted to go back to new york i missed my community um and so i moved back and i kind of it kind of took me a while to find the courage to start my own company i was working at that sustainable fashion brand when we connected it was kind of my half stutter step into um back into new york where I associated New York and fashion so much. It felt safer to land back in that field. And I just wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilling my purpose. And so I kind of abruptly quit that fashion company and said, I'm going to be a landscape designer um, because that's what I was the happiest doing was when I was working as a project manager for this landscape firm. I can kind of model myself after that firm and take on high-end residential development and hotel projects. And I really thought I was going to start a traditional landscape company. And then going back to community, my community in New York was not developers, um, was not hoteliers. I mean, a little bit, but they were creatives. They were weirdos. They were, you know, artists and music people and fashion people and design people. And so when when folks heard, heard that I was doing landscape, I mean, who, when you're 26, 27, which is when I started my company, like who has like a terrace or a garden in New York for you to design? Like not many people, yeah. you know? So it's like, okay, well, I rented a warehouse in Bushwick and I am doing this, you know, rave do you, and I want to put plants in it. Do you want to do that? I am, you know, doing this exhibition in downtown LA with all these artists and I want to do a garden room. Could you help execute that? Hi, I'm doing a fashion exhibition um, and we want florals for the presentation. Can you do that? And so I started experimenting with plants as an artistic medium in these creative and non-traditional spaces instead of, you know, the boxed garden, you know? So I kind of started drawing outside the lines as it were, and just really found my joy. You know, it was just felt like this is how I can tell much more complex stories and communicate much bigger ideas. Some of those things that we were just talking about of, you know, how do you talk about a spiritual connection to the natural world, or how do you talk about uh, horticulture and botany? How do you um, tell these bigger narratives? It's my entry point was more botanical art than it was traditional landscape design. I found much more freedom in that. I love, I love the phrase botanical art. I feel like it's just, it's such a beautiful way of doing it. And it's funny because there's something like, I was thinking about this a lot, like our psyche and our connection to beauty in the natural world. Because for instance, I did this moratorium on buying any fresh flowers. I'm in Maine, obviously. And I was like, I'm not going to buy any horrible imported chemical laden you know, faraway flowers until we've got like local flowers growing again. And just last week, our local tulip growers started producing, you know, sustainable flowers down in down East Maine. And so I brought a few bouquets home and my husband and I were both commenting on how like the house had felt different without like just even flowers around. And it's funny, like 
Have you noticed working in this space that there is like a psychology of like when you added things to these spaces, just just the effect that that had on the overall space, on the way people interacted in it, like given that you've kind of seen it happen and you design in that way, like what do you think that is? Like how have you how have you seen those reactions sort of? Yeah, I mean, you know, there is plenty of science that backs up that um, empirical observation. You know, there are many studies that show that there are better creative outcomes, health outcomes when there are plants, for example, in an office space or in a hospital or old folks home. You have um people really responding on a physiological level. I think, you know, going back to the biophilia hypothesis, which is, you know, the belief that, uh, you know, humans have a innate connection to the natural world. You know, we have spent many more millennia out in nature, immersed in nature than we have in these boxes, you know? So I think, you know, your parasympathetic nervous system really responds when it's around around nature and it has a profoundly calming effect. You know, I find in my pieces, you know, that sometimes doesn't come across in my portfolio, but we do a lot of programming and we really layer the planted environment with a cultural ecosystem. So a lot of the pieces will have an educational panel or a workshop or a student art class or a musical performance or a dance performance. And the alchemy of having uh, a community interaction like that against the backdrop of this kind of lush verdant environment, I think something really special happens. I think people are kind of more open to uh, interaction, conversation. There's there's a lightness to it that I find a lot of joy in. And um, yeah, it's something that I think you, you can observe with your eye. And then also it's just connected um, and backed up by studies as well. Well, I mean, it's a very, very good reason for all of us to be investing in more houseplants, that's for sure. And it's funny, I literally, you're so right. I was at a hardware store the other day and hardware stores are not pretty, like just, you know, straight up. They're just not, and they, they had this huge fika plant there. Like it was just out of like nowhere. There was this huge plant there and it was so beautiful. And I noticed it and I was like, oh, this is why this hardware store feels a little bit better than other hardware stores. It was just one single plant can change the psyche. And I feel like it leads me on to my next question, which is the sort of the efforts you've made with Freedom Gardens and this idea <laughs> of bringing, you know, I remember seeing something you put on Instagram years ago and I can still remember it. I don't know when you put it out exactly, but you were talking about like doing like seed bombs, like of wildflowers and like how to how to build a seed bomb and stuff. And I, I love this. So can you tell us a little bit about like the inception of Freedom Gardens and maybe how this sort of evolved? Because I know it's a bit of a side project, but I really love what it is. Yeah, so that really emerged from the COVID crisis and the lockdown. So I was slotted to have the biggest installation year of my career in 2020. We had multiple development projects and public art projects. And then over this course of 72 hours, I think six or seven of my projects got postponed or canceled. And it's just like so many of us experienced just 
devastating and terrifying. And you're just like, what is happening? Um, and I was feeling really, really, you know, downtrodden and panicked. And we gathered my team and we started talking and just said, you know, this is a moment of crisis. How can we be of service? Like, let's take out all of these, you know, how do we survive? How can we help support our community right now? And a woman on my team, my incredible project manager, Shannon Lai, she has taught me so much. She's amazing human being. She had been the project manager at the Brooklyn, sorry, not the project manager, the crop manager at the Brooklyn Grange for many years, which is the biggest rooftop farm um, in the country. And so she has this enormous catalog, um, and block of, of knowledge when it comes to urban growing and urban farming that we hadn't really utilized as a design studio. My focus is so much more on, you know, botanical art and, and ornamentals and landscape. Um, and so, as you can probably recall that time, you know, a trip to the grocery store felt scary. We were seeing these massive, massive, massive lines at food banks. It, it just really underscored the COVID-19 crisis just really underscored the existing um, inequalities and food insecurity crisis that our, our country already experiences. And so she said, you know, I think if we can share knowledge and instruction on how people can grow their own food, can support their their themselves, take kind of agency and autonomy back, um, but also just for mental health. Like there are, you know, plenty um, of uh, studies that show that just like getting your hands in the soil and planting have very positive effects on your mental health. So beyond the actual um, resource of if you'd be able to grow your own food, also just the the practice of it. And so we we just launched Freedom Gardens as an Instagram account, started sharing the personal stories of home gardeners and people from all over the country and even some all over the world started sharing photos of their garden, telling first person accounts of what they were growing and how they were doing it. And then we launched this website, Freedom Gardens that gave practical lessons on how to propagate seeds, how to um, plan a crop rotation, how to um, harvest. And we held a couple Zooms as well with some real kind of urban ag experts that shared information with hundreds of people, thousands of people really when when you look at our, our Instagram um, over the course of the few months of like very heavy lockdown. And, you know, we've unfortunately put that project on pause once our, once our installation works picked up again, but our ultimate dream is to build a real physical freedom garden, something um, for the public that could be handed over, that could be a resource that could, um, you know, support mutual aid networks and, um, be a gathering space for, for community and also a food resource. In, I, in somewhere that really needs I and I love that idea because I feel like another thing that you're kind of talking about and falls into that remit is this idea of you know being more mindful too of of things like native plants and cover crops and all of these things and I guess having worked on that has it like impacted the way that you think about like the way you personally garden or personally landscape 
Totally. I mean, I suddenly went from having all these projects all over the country to just staring at my backyard, you know? <laughs> and so that became my project um, in 2020 and into 2021. And so I started replacing all the exotic plants um, in the understory of my garden with native plants. I really connected with Theodore Payne Nursery here. I'm now on their board. I got that passionate about native plants. Um, but Theodore Payne's this incredible native plant nursery in Southern California that's also dedicated to the education and conservation of, of native plants and their role in the ecosystem. And um, I obviously would try and integrate native plants into my work for the past few years, but I hadn't had the time to really study and connect with the hort horticulture team at Theodore Payne until the lockdown and really understand that, you know, these native plants are, are what create habitat. You know, so many of the fauna and the insects have co-evolved with the plants in the, in the region to um, pollinate, to support, uh, you know, homes and um, kind of the health of the entire ecosystem. And when you plant exotics, you're taking away all that food, you're taking away all that shelter, you're taking away um, the possibility for, for pollination. Um, because, you know, many native insects like don't know what to do with these exotic plants. And so I think once I really understood that, also understood that water usage can be cut down by 80% by using native 80%? plants. It, yeah. And in Southern California, you know, we're dealing with this, you know, real real, real water crisis that it just feels irresponsible to me to not use native plants. I really want the city to start using only native plants when it comes to public plantings, medians, vacant lots, um, because they just require so much less resources, not only water resources, but uh, pesticides. They also help and are, are more adapted to our, our climate. So it's like the extreme droughts, the um, you know, fires, like the, these native plants are much more resilient and, and adapted to surviving these conditions versus, you know, plant other native exotic plants that make up 85% of our gardens. Really? Exotic plants, make exotic plants make up 85% of the average American garden. So think about how confused are the the insects and fauna are in our environments. You're creating all this kind of ecological dissonance by doing that. And so there's a huge amount of responsibility if you are lucky enough to have a garden or a yard, um, you know, you can provide really vital habitat because there's not a lot of places where these animals can find food and shelter um, in your average American garden. That is incredible. I I mean, I knew that we'd gone a little bit crazy, but for 85% of the average American garden to just have a metaphor, isn't it? it isn't it for, for, for our culture of like, just always wanting what's over the hill, you know, always, you know, wanting something that isn't um, thinking that there's something better in the other side of, of 
of the world. And I, and obviously, obviously, obviously it's such insane beauty all over the world, you know, in, in everything, not just plant life, but culture, um, food, but, but I also think, um, putting love and attention into building local community, whether it's plant communities or, um, you know, culinary communities or fashion communities or whatever it is. Um, there's so much we're missing by um, kind of not cultivating our own backyard. I feel it's so funny. I don't actually know if you know this, but my dad owns a landscaping company and my mom owns a garden center. And oh my yes, gosh. yes, they do. And this is something I know. And it's something that they have struggled with. So since I've been home, I've been talking to my mom more. I mean, you know, hands up when I was in London, I didn't have as much time to chat with her about these things, but I was like talking to her about this native plant situation. And she was like, the problem is most of our customers come in and they want the same thing. They want hydrangeas. They want this, totally. they want that. Totally. And she's like, we have a small section of native plants, but she was like, from a business standpoint, it just doesn't make any sense. And we've been talking a lot about how you get people to ask for native plants. Cause like, we don't want people coming into the store and asking for the same five things over and over and over again. We want people coming in the store being like, I want to learn like what's indigenous to down East Maine. And you know, how do we do that? And it's funny because I've had this conversation with you and before you, Edwina Von Gal, who we both know. And, oh, and she was, hero. Just, I know. And she was just saying like, we need to get people going into these nurseries and asking for native plants, because that is how you can make such a huge impact as a consumer is like showing your local nursery that that's what you want, because that's how we like change the system. But you're bringing up such an interesting point. And I've been talking about the executive director at Theodore Payne. It's called Evan Meyer. And I he's kind of sparked my like passion and creativity as an artist. Because to me, I'm like, that's an artist's challenge is how do you shift people's perception of beauty? How do you change? Because that's really what it is, right? You know, we have been taught through gardening magazines and kind of the broader cultural narrative. And that's honestly why I stopped doing residential landscape on the East Coast, because everybody wants hydrangeas, boxwoods, rhododendrons, like that. There's a very specific plant list and yeah. that's, it varies by, you know, five to 10 species essentially. And to me, that's such an interesting challenge. Like the example for California, let's say that Evan brought up is, you know, and it's hard for me as a designer because I have my own prejudices when it comes to aesthetics, but I was looking at these native plants in the summer and some of them die back and are brown and, and look, you know, like New York plants in the winter. And he was saying, well, this is the natural rhythm out here. This is, they're, they're going dormant essentially in the summer. How insane would you look at somebody in Maine if they put their house in a bubble and were blowing hot air into it in the middle of December? It's just an impossibility. So expecting bright, vibrant green in July in Los Angeles is not realistic, you know? And so how do you change that perception of beauty? And you see someone like Pierre Udloff, who really did that, you know, he's an incredible landscape 
artist, horticulturist, designer, and he did the the horticulture for the um the High Line and so many other iconic projects. But he really defined the Winter Garden, and he has a whole book called the the you know that's focused on the Winter Garden. Really helped the consumer or the the home gardener see the beauty in the browner, more um, kind of like less sexy winter garden. And I think we have to shift those perceptions as well on um, on the West Coast. And I think that takes a lot of creativity and artistry. Are you thinking- So I like the challenge. I like I, the challenge. I, I love it. Yeah, that was my next question. Like, do you feel like, you know, because I think like what's so interesting about human beings is that actually it's like- and I had another person on the podcast that said this because we were talking about sustainability and she was from England, but she started her business in New York. And I was like, do you ever get frustrated with like America's lack of progress on sustainability, given that we're such a superpower? And she was like, I really do. But the thing is like, when America does something like all of a sudden everybody else falls in line. And, and also like, that's very much in the American psyche that you know, we are people driven by trends. I think we're almost like a trend built country. Like I would hazard a guess to say that. And I feel like if we could make this a cool thing or an aesthetically led thing, or so it's almost not that hard because it's just like, oh, we just need to shift our psyche to, to it's this. happening. It's happening. I mean, I don't know about in Maine, but in Southern California, you know, People are really freaked out about water. It's incredibly expensive to keep an exotic, huge, you know, a huge lawn and exotic plants green all year round. So people are starting to ask about natives. And I also think the lockdown, people are stuck in their homes for two years and started thinking differently about their environments, started, I mean, it happened to me. I I don't know if I would have swapped out, um, you know, we, we bought this house a couple of years ago and it had all these exotic plants. And, you know, I, I don't think I would have had the bandwidth to start making those shifts, but I do have to say, I find, I find it very humbling gardening. I have not cracked this. I am figuring it out. There's difference between making botanical art and gardening. It's a very different muscle. And so, um, like I said, it's just much more humbling. There's lots of mistakes and trial and error and it's more of a conversation gardening than you know a botanical art piece like a statement you know so um it's just a real journey trying to cultivate my own backyard but I think and like there but like the thing is is like a part of like pardon my French but like you kind of can't fuck up nature if you're doing the right thing right like we got when we moved to our farm like it's six acres and basically it had been mowed down the people that lived here before they mowed every single piece of grass for the last 40 years almost like I was like oh my god are we ever gonna have anything here except really 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 short grass and my husband and I were like we have no idea what we're doing so we're just gonna sit back and do nothing for the first year and see what happens And I'm not kidding, the meadow that sprung up just as soon as we stopped touching it, like it was just this incredible reminder to me every day that I looked out and saw it like growing. I was like, nature is so resilient if we give it the chance and we kind of like let it just do its thing. It was like extraordinary. Um, So that's what gave me hope about um, conservation efforts is 
the, you know, the intelligence of nature is adapted over hundreds of millions of years. And if you put the right inputs into a toxic river or an over-farmed piece of land or, um, you know, an over-logged mountain, you know, and you start reintroducing native species or you do nothing or you, you know, whatever, there's all these interesting wildlife management strategies in a couple years you see massive leaps in terms of the health of that ecosystem and so you know nature is like the body it tends towards homeostasis it wants to heal you know so i think i think that's really wise i was looking at my library because there's an amazing book i'm blanking on the name but I'll, I'll find it, but it, but it is about kind of letting your, your garden go wild and letting nature take over and, and kind of designing for a more than human world, you know, that sometimes what is maybe not pleasing to our eye is actually what's the most supportive, um, for the, for the ecosystem. And it's a just very cool, um, kind of experiment that you get to to practice up there in your new well, home. It's true. And like, so just to finish on that, like you've got to, if you find the book, send it to me and I'll link it in, in the show notes. But basically like we got foxes back. There were snakes. Yeah. There were like, we saw so much, there were more bald eagles because they were hunting in the meadow. Like they knew that there were like creatures in there. So it was extraordinary. And that was just one year. So like, it really is quite a phenomenal thing. And I'm so glad that it's becoming more of a talking piece. And I'm so glad that like you're working on it and it does feel like it's becoming more of a thing, which is just so fabulous, but it does. I just want to say gardener, what the humane it? gardener, nurturing a backyard habitat for wildlife by Nancy Lawson from Princeton architectural press. Okay. And she chronicles this journey of seeing the eagles come back, seeing the the hunters come come back, the pollinators, the butterflies, and just how much life came into her property and her home from just allowing nature to be wild, you know? It's crazy. very beautiful. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. And I will put a link to that so everybody can check it out. But kind of now to just go into like your most recent accomplishment because it's such a huge one is you've just curated a show at the New York Botanical Gardens. And for anybody that's like near-ish to New York, it's running through April 23rd. And can you tell us a little bit about your work with this? Because that's, it's so huge. It, it was huge. It was, you know, I've done some big installations before. I've done a piece on the High Line, a piece on in Grand Central, um, some pieces for Art Basel in Miami, but this felt like a really different scale because I think the New York Botanical Garden is such an institution um, and there's such a wealth of horticultural and botanical knowledge. And so to have those resources um, at my fingertips to build this piece and this installation, you know, also with the enormous support from NYBG's kind of expert team, the, the result was just kind of unprecedented um, in, in our work. We got to just work at this 
extraordinary scale. And when I started my career, when I shifted from that sustainable fashion company to a landscape, I started taking classes at New York Botanical Garden six years ago. So I was in their landscape certificate program and I was exploring, can I even start a company in this field? And then six years later, I'm getting to design their biggest show, you know, that has 250,000 plus visitors in its two month run. So it just felt really full circle. Um, and just this immense honor and and privilege. Yeah. So, you know, those were the conservatories that kind of inspired my early career. Well, it, you know, that it's a good thing when it's like kind of coming full circle and that you are on the right path, but I know that you, you know, there was a focus on orchids. Like, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you curated this and and what the deeper meaning behind it was to you? Because I feel like there's kind of a beautiful story in that. So I found out that I was the first woman and the first person of color to um, be invited to be the guest designer in, in 20 years. So as soon as I found that out, um, it became really, really clear that I wanted to explore and celebrate my heritage. And I'm, I'm half Chinese. Um, my family's from Shanghai. I'm second generation. My, my dad was born in San Francisco. I was also born in the Bay area, but my grandparents were born in Shanghai. I grew up very close to my grandparents. They had a huge influence on my life. And I also felt like during the lockdown, I'd never seen my you know, Asian community so, so rattled, you know, it's been a really challenging year with the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and hate speech and violence. And so I just wanted to do something that celebrated the incredible Asian diaspora in New York City and beyond. And so where I ended up starting was I have these four scrolls uh, a Chinese landscape painting that are in my living room now as an adult. My parents gifted them to me for my wedding present, um, but I'd grown up with them and my grandparents had carried them back from Shanghai. And it's just these this huge painting of kind of quotidian life in rural China, these massive mountains and emerging from the mist and the water. And I, they were the first time I remember using my imagination as a kid, I would kind of stare at them for hours. And it just, I think when you're a second generation immigrant, sometimes the proverbial homelands feel like that. They feel like a dream. They feel like something you're attracted to, but it's kind of out of reach and is, is just, just in your imagination. And so it was profoundly healing and really rewarding to bring these forms that I had really informed my perception as a kid of quote unquote, the homeland and build them in real scale. So the, the first, the exhibition is called natural heritage and it takes place across three major conservatories. And the first conservatory you walk into is the iconic palm dome, that big glass dome and the mountain form that you see in that conservatory um, is almost a verbatim form from that the painting. Okay. And so it just felt really beautiful to illustrate something that had, had meant so much to me from such a young age. And then for the other elements, the other two conservatories, we looked at traditional Chinese landscape painting. We drew a lot of 
um, kind of forms and study from our research there. And then also we created this kind of meditative walk, this room that integrated stonework and water and really looked at traditional Chinese landscape design as an inspiration for the composition for those pieces. And what's so cool about Chinese garden design is it's so deeply connected to many philosophical practices, whether it's Taoism or Buddhism, you know, these things of harmony between man and nature, yin and yang, these things are explored through the composition and how um, the elements in a Chinese garden are composed. And so it felt like this really wonderful uh, meditation um, on how plants can be these rich carriers of cultural information. I love that. I feel like it's, I, I've seen photos of it and it just looks completely stunning. Um, and I'm going to try to get to New York before it ends because it, it's really wonderful. And I think, you know, I love just all of the themes of what you've spoken about today is just like this art form of botanics and how you've used them throughout urbanism and your heritage and even into, you know, the political situation that we've got here. And, and the kind of beauty of working with plants is like, even when you take on big topics, there's just this sort of like gentle beauty that can't ever be too radical, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So I love that. And what do you have, you know, what's in the pipeline now? Like, is there anything kind of coming up that you're like really excited about? I mean, I feel like kind of off the back of that, it's got to be a little bit hard to beat, but tell us what's kind of in store. I feel lucky because there can be a real kind of dip after a big project like that, but I feel really lucky that I have two really exciting projects coming up next month. The first is a um, piece that I have been developing uh, for the expo in Chicago, the the big art fair, um, Art at a Time Like This and NRDC um, are curating a show all around climate and climate change and the climate crisis. And so it's kind of my first sculptural piece that will be um, in an exhibition space that I'm very excited about. The focus is uh, native plants and their role in fire ecology and um, looking at the wildfires in California. So very kind of, as you said, like a intense topic to explore, um, but so much beauty in the actual properties of the plants. So many of these native plants are fire followers and, you know, are able to store, store nutrients or even activated by the fire itself. So, um, you know, looking at kind of regeneration post burn and what that can look like. And then the other piece I'm developing is a botanical art piece for design week in Milan. And I've never worked in Italy. So I'm very excited to be um, building a piece there. That's going to be amazing. And it's just funny, like off of what you just said, one of the girls that works for me, Taylor, she's from Santa Monica and in the last like big fire, her family lives up on a hill and like almost everything got destroyed below them besides their house. Like it was, it was horrible. It was horrific and and very bad. And they had to live in a hotel while her dad was going through chemo. I mean, it was just, it was extraordinary and it was such a challenging time. And then afterwards I was like talking to her and she was saying her and her husband were going back into the soil after everything had burned. And like, she was like, but it's incredible. All these plants are coming up. Yeah. 
And yeah. she was saying how it actually was just so meaningful to them to like out of all of these ashes and, and heartache and difficulty, like nature was like coming up and, and almost in a more resilient way than before. And like, there's something really beautiful about that. So I love that you're exploring that with your exhibition. Yeah. So we have those two pieces um, and it feels good to dive right into something else because it can, it can be hard to follow something like that. I would imagine. Well, I want to finish up with a final question that I feel like we have a lot of young moms that are in the audience. And I know that you are a young mother yourself and kind of going full circle to how we started, given how much like the natural world was incorporated in your childhood and probably influenced you. How are you like approaching that as a mother yourself being like in LA, being in New York and how you how you're thinking about that. Cause I think a lot of people right now are dealing with this way of like parenting in this world we, we inhabit and how you do it. So I, I just, I know it's a personal question, but I feel like it's a really important one to ask. Yeah. It's challenging. I think about it a lot. It was literally keeping me up the other night because <laughs> I really grew up in the woods and I want my kid to have that experience. So I, you know, one thing anybody who works with me knows is I, I bring my kid almost everywhere when I can. So, you know, he's comes with me to nursery visits, site visits. Sometimes if, if the, the, the job site is safe, he's, you know, in the corner in an installation shift, he's around plants a lot. And I feel like that's been really, um, essential for me as a, new mother who runs a business is, and this is a huge privilege, but trying to more integrate motherhood in my business rather than keeping it totally separate. I think um, realizing that the work that I'm doing, the research that I'm doing, the installations that I'm building are, if he's interested, which he is, I mean, he's a curious little two-year-old, um, are wonderful things to expose him to that. It's not that these things are taking me away from him. It's that I'm, you know, gathering all this interesting, uh, knowledge and creativity that I'm able to share with him. Um, so that's been one shift in mindset that's really helped me. Um, and, you know, I think my my parents still live in Mill Valley. It's being able to, we're going up this weekend, making sure we're regularly doing our kind of wilderness treks. And then we've even been looking at forest schools, which are really cool. You know, that's essentially taking place, you know, in large urban parks, whether it's in they're they're in almost every major city. My friend, I learned about them because a dear friend of mine sends her kids to a forest school in London. So rain, shine, snow, she's dropping her kids off in Hyde Park and their classroom is the outdoors. And um, LA has a few forest schools that I think are really interesting. And, and um, I, I know New York does as well. So open one here I, in Downey's Maine. Like, yeah, I think it's an interesting, um, at least my kid, and I know a lot of moms are the same, his attention span is like five times as long outside than it is inside. So I think going back to the biophilia hypothesis, I do think we're naturally, you know, adapted to be um, immersed in nature rather than in boxes and, you know, kids and certainly toddlers are much more wild than maybe we've become 
as adults. And so just trying to encourage that and bring that out in him is something that's a major priority for me. I love that. All right. Well, look, I finished the podcast with the same question for everybody. So I'm going to ask it for you because we always like cover some things that are kind of deep and it's what is making you feel most hopeful about the future? It's like so saccharine, but I, my, my child, um, it's not the, and I- the, the, the children, not just my child, but the children, I feel like, um, young kids have just such a different consciousness, such a different, um, understanding of sustainability and conservation. They're feeling the effects of the climate crisis in such a more intense and acute way than, um, we did, or our parents did. And, you know, my heart goes out to, I know a lot of kids are experiencing major climate anxiety. I think that must be incredibly hard, but there's, you also have these like incredibly, uh, you know, passionate, equipped, intelligent eco-warriors who aren't taking no for an answer. There's not the same compromise as there, there was in my kind of millennial, generation there's more um there's more urgency and clarity of purpose and and focus and so i the 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 younger generation is what's making me hopeful about the future of um sustainability and conservation well i love that answer and thank you so much and to everybody who's listening go and see the exhibition if you're in new york and then um, we'll put in the show notes your next exhibitions for anybody that's in Milan or where's the climate change one happening, did you say? Um, at the Expo in Chicago. Okay, so there we go. We've got we've covered all the bases almost geographically. So I feel like yeah. somebody can go see most yes. of them. The New York Botanical Garden is running through April 23rd. And I know there's some really cool orchid nights coming up. So those are evenings for adults where there's going to be musical performances and dance and programming. And so it's, it's a good moment to kind of check the website and see what, see what's going on. Um, but thank you so much for having me. I loved this conversation and, um, just so happy for a chance to share some of this work and reconnect. I know. Same. Well, thanks Lily and take care.